0: Hey everybody, welcome back to Alpha Chat, the business and economics podcast of the Financial Times. I'm Cardiff Garcia,
4: and I'm Shannon Bond,
0: and we are here, Shannon, to talk about marijuana.
4: No, Cardiff, we are here to talk about industrial hemp.
0: Oh, what's so- <laughs> what's the difference between hemp and marijuana?
4: So the confusion um, is understandable. Um, they're both cannabis plants, but two years ago, the U.S. officially designated industrial hemp as a kind of cannabis. That only has um has less than point three percent of THC, which is the the ingredient in marijuana that makes you high. So you have cannabis plants. Some of them are marijuana. Some of them are hemp.
0: Can explain to me why I'm so hungry right now. <laughs>
4: just, so just
0: kidding. Full disclosure: we're not smoking weed here. Okay, cool. So in your article uh, with Greg Meyer, commodities correspondent, who joins us now, you describe uh, marijuana as a cousin to hemp, but hemp actually has some other purposes that are useful. Greg, welcome to the show. We're gonna do like a quick. Pre-show segment with you.
1: Okay, nice to uh, hear.
0: So, wait a minute. Uh, you and Shannon wrote this piece because something's happened in the world of financial derivatives that has to do with hemp. What's going on?
1: Yeah, I mean, who would have thought? Just as the hemp market itself is is starting to uh, to to blossom, uh, or perhaps I should say, bud. I'm not sure. There's uh, a couple of entrepreneurs in Chicago that want to launch what. Is uh, a hemp derivatives exchange where farmers, processors, consumers can hedge their risk of hemp industrial hemp prices.
0: Wait, c- can you guys tell me first what hemp is used for besides, well, you know, recreational purposes?
4: So you can't get high from hemp. Let's just we'll put that out there. Okay. Um, you can't smoke it and get high. It's generally used. Um, it's been used for essentially millennia, right? For like paper products, for clothing, um, for rope, and it's now being used for building materials. There's bioplastics. If you go to your local Whole Foods, you'll see all kinds of food products now. Um, My husband for a while was eating hemp protein, Um, but there's also like shampoos, like all kinds of things, basically. It's one of these plants that people who are really into it basically say can be used for almost anything.
0: So it's been kind of stigmatized by its familial association with marijuana. Is that accurate?
1: Yeah, it has. In doing this story, I read up a, a bit on the history, and hemp was was actually widely grown in the U.S. I should say it's widely grown elsewhere in the world now, uh, but it was widely grown in the first part of the 20th century. The U.S. actually grew 150 million pounds worth of hemp in 1943, in the middle of the Second World War, uh, where it was used to you know to help supply the war effort. And then increasingly, there, there was this crack, crackdown because of concerns about use of marijuana as a drug. And, and it basically was, there was no recorded production after the late fifties.
0: Okay. And final question, is this derivatives market going to work, do you think? And what does it need in order to start taking off to become successful?
1: I, I think what it needs first is a robust cash market where people are actually buying and selling physical, I don't know if, I don't know if they come in bales or or piles or what, but a, a, you know, of hemp. For that to exist, and then derivatives market, you know, like a futures market, can sort of evolve on top of that. Um, right now, it's very segmented. It's not grown in a lot of states. It seems like you know need, needs to needs to germinate. But uh, you know, the, the, these these entrepreneurs are getting in on the, on the ground floor, and uh, and maybe they'll help foster that.
4: And we should say, I mean, essentially what happened is in 2014, the U.S. Farm Bill allowed it to be legally grown in states that were willing to regulate it. You know, this is essentially only like the second full year at this
0: point of of a hemp harvest. So it's probably a bit earlier for Mm -hmm. those things to develop. Okay. Something to watch. Greg, thanks so much for coming in. Sure. Uh, Kids, you heard it here. Don't smoke hemp because it's pointless. It doesn't even do anything for you. We need it to make other stuff, Okay. I'm not going to tell you whether or not to smoke marijuana because I'm not hectoring like that. What I do know is that it's time to get on with today's show. So let's do it. First up on the show today, we talked to the FT's U.S. markets editor, Robin Wigglesworth, about artificial intelligence and machine learning in investment. It's a really fascinating topic, one that Robin's been covering for a while. And then John Authors, the FT's senior investment commentator, sat down with Mohamed El-Aryan and they discussed Mohamed's recent book, The Only Game in Town, and they also discussed all of the many dilemmas for global monetary policy at the moment. And of course, Emily Mahasek will join us for the follow-up and we'll give you our long-form recommendations for the week. Stick around. Lots of fun stuff today. First up on the show, we are joined by Robin Wigglesworth, who's here to talk to us about the exciting or maybe terrifying prospect of artificial intelligence in investment. Robin, thanks for coming back on Alpha Chat, man. No, thanks so much for having me again. Okay, so you wrote this uh, big read in the FT a couple weeks ago called The Search for a Super Algo. What's it all
3: about? Well, I mean, something that started fascinating me a while ago, obviously, we know that artificial intelligence has come such a long way. But as I was talking to a lot of these quant fund managers, some of the words that we using were kind of like, holy crap, what was that? And there were things like machine learning, deep learning, big data. And You know, these are things I've heard about in other areas, but I wasn't aware that they were, they were so prevalent, so popular, so hot in investing. Now, Quite a lot of people don't use this stuff. But the smarter, the cleverer hedge funds, the ones like staff with computer scientists rather than MBAs, they do a lot of this now. They've just started and there's a lot of potential in this area.
0: Yeah, this was kind of an interesting point in your piece. We've known for a while that uh, hedge funds have been hiring people like scientists, engineers, uh, but I always kind of assumed that that was just so they could build better mathematical models and these people happen to be very intuitive. This seems like a leap from the earlier computing stuff that hedge funds and other investment managers were using what's the difference between those earlier models and the shift now to machine learning and artificial intelligence? Like in its very basic sense, what exactly is the difference?
3: Well, if we go back, yeah, I mean, quantitative investing has been using mathematical models rather than sort of a trader saying, oh, I fancy a bit of IBM stock today. I think they are going up and things like that. These traders are sense patterns almost intuitively in the markets. You know, these are people that are physicists and mathematicians who have a very good background in that somehow, that have been using things like statistical uh, approaches to find out what goes on. Uh, you know, t- Typically, if a stock goes up for two days, it typically goes on, up for the third day. If it falls for two days, it typically falls for the third day. All these things, all these patterns you can see in markets. This is sort of, I hate using word, buzzwords like this, but it's a quant investing 2.0 or the next right. generation of that. It's a deepening. You know, Before, they, they used computers to crunch a lot of the numbers. But, you know, these days, you and I can buy stuff that Five years ago, it would have been a supercomputer, and we would stick it under our desk. So, a lot of stuff that we technically knew was possible. Some of these techniques, are quite old, we knew they were possible, but just, it would take so long, and it would be difficult to actually implement trading strategies that run in live markets, doing it. But now you can do that. Some of these stuff use just massive data sets, right. and with sort of your day-to-day average supercomputer under your desk, you can actually do some pretty funky stuff.
0: Yeah, I guess it's like reading your piece. It seemed to me like in the past, the humans would roughly know where to look. They just couldn't always find the opportunities because the data sets were so big. Now, it seems like the machines are actually telling the humans where to look. In other words, they can look at everything, not just typical capital markets. They can look at other stuff. You mentioned weather patterns. It's kind of astonishing, actually.
3: Uh, It's weather patterns. It's satellite photos of car parks to see, you know, is Walmart hot now? Uh, Satellite tracking of of, um, tanker ships see trade patterns, things like that, it's everything. It can be automatically scanning millions and millions and millions of pages of transcribed earnings reports and finding signals from that. Now, machines used to have to tell them what to look for. and You want to test an idea, does this work, does that work? Now, with machine learning, you can actually tell the computer's feed data into it, and it will look for patterns itself and how those patterns might change over time. One of my favorite examples, most of the hedge funds don't want to tell you some of the, the secret sauce, but one of my favorite patterns was back in the day when they scanned through earnings transport, they could see that whenever a, let's say, a company CEO resigned and the company had done quite well, you knew the shares would underperform because a good CEO, he left, the shares would do badly. And then when there was a statement they arrived and he'd been sacked, you, know, you knew Jeremy knew the shares would also do well after a while because you know he was underperforming CEO. But these days... Every statement says that people leave for personal reasons. It's just because of the way our human language has evolved. Nobody ever says we sacked that guy. He was terrible. Yeah. Now we say we left for personal reasons or health reasons or pursue other opportunities. So that signal has been harder to find in the noise. So, but machines will find new things all the time. Like for example, if Apple has a blowout earnings report, what does that mean for its entire huge network network? Of supplies. I mean, that's huge. These supply chains. So one big company's earnings report can actually tell you a lot of things. What happens across an entire economy or supply chain? Okay, I want to do a quick interlude here and turn to Shannon and just ask you.
0: Like, as you as you hear Robin describing this, does it make you a little nervous that one more part of our lives will be super quantified for the benefit of other people making money?
4: I mean, I think we're we're already well sort of past that tipping point, <laughs> point to be honest. Uh, but I mean, my question is. Does it work? I mean, are they actually performing better as a result of using sort of this next wave?
3: Some funds not. You know, the new quant funds, there's new computer scientists coming out of university all the time and think they've got hot new algo that will work fantastically well. Uh, and they do abysmally in real life. You can backtest stuff. I and mean, you can run a computer, a model, or a theory against you know, huge historical data. And look, like, oh, this looks amazing. And then in reality, it just fizzles. But the top hedge funds are doing incredibly well. Some of the, the fastest growing hedge funds are ones that are using some of these more machine learning techniques. And is this, it,
4: are, is this stuff that they're – are they developing this all in-house? Because, I mean, you mentioned weather, right? And sort of intersecting into my beat, um, IBM bought the data assets of the weather company recently, For exactly these sort of things. You know, they essentially – the weather company um, runs the Weather Channel here in the U.S., but they also have this unbelievably rich set of data that they use. They sell to marketers for essentially saying, you know, if you're Walmart, you might want to advertise – you know certain items at certain times of year, depending on what you might want to advertise umbrellas when there's going to be a you know, particularly rainy season in Chicago that sort of thing, so are there external companies that they're working with or is the hedge funds taking this stuff all in house
3: no so most of the what what they've started to call alternative data so uses of company earnings, economic reports, things like that sort of standard data these alternative data anything that's kind of funky or weird or even unstructured, sometimes a complete jumble it's not organized very well, and you can run those through a machine learning algorithm and also sort, of sort things out. Most of that comes from external. The fun thing is they've been hoovering up data sets. Sometimes they don't even know if it's going to be useful, but they just buy every single data set. Some people are a little bit more careful because some of these, this is quite expensive, but some of the top ones, for example, I've heard Two Sigma, which is one of the more advanced funds. They just buy everything, not because everything will be useful, but they don't want to send the signal to other hedge funds what might be valuable. So they just buy everything, they run it through, and they won't say exactly what works and what doesn't work. One thing that people got very excited about, but actually has proven to be a bit of a dud, is social media searches, Twitter, like hedge funds trading off Twitter. It sounded like a fun thing. You can look look for sentiment, things like that, but it hasn't really worked out. The people I say, that has been a classic one where there's just too much noise to really sort of pinpoint a signal in there.
0: Let's talk about uh, how to balance the benefits versus the risks, because there have been examples in the past of when a bunch of hedge funds using quantitative models essentially put on the same or similar trades. And then when those trades broke in the other direction, markets swung quite violently. This happened just prior to the financial crisis of 2008. I guess I'm wondering if the advancement in computer technology now and machine learning AI means that the kinds of strategies that these funds put on will now be varied enough that that is less of a risk or if, in fact, because these things are programmed by humans still, that risk still exists?
3: Well, no, that's a very good question. There is a concern that there is this hidden herding effect where, you know, a lot of these models, the algorithms are basically designed by quite a lot of the same types of people. People went to quite often the same computer science departments, uh, so there are people that discover new things. but what typically happens is you you discover a some sort of trading pattern and you put on an algo or well, algo finds a trading pattern, you trade it, but then eventually other funds find it as well and disappears so there's this constant arms race to find new markets, new asset classes, new patterns, new anomalies that you can take advantage of. The scary or interesting part of this new generation of quantum investing using artificial intelligence techniques is that you can actually set up these machine learning algos, for example, very complex training systems, to be pretty much autonomous. As in, humans might design it, but you set it loose into markets and it trades by itself. The wonderful thing about these is that typically the old quant stuff, they would work very well until they suddenly didn't or they blew up in a horrible way these algos will actually evolve. They will learn from its own mistakes. So as markets shift, it will shift its own techniques or we'll pull in its horns, it'll be more careful. Or for example, it suddenly finds that momentum does really well now. So we'll buy lots of stocks are going up and sell lots of stocks are going down. Or suddenly actually value is suddenly, that's that's where the market money is now. So it'll shift and adapt. That's obviously a good thing. But the potential is, I mean, it doesn't take a huge leap of imagination to think about huge trading algos running quite a lot of money running autonomously from any sort of human real oversight because as much as a human can sit there with his finger on a red button you know these computers move so quickly and can interact with other trading algos out in the marketplace in ways that frankly we just cannot foresee and that is a bit scary we can have flash crashes i don't go over 20 30 minutes but 20 30 seconds there can be carnage
0: All right. Brave new world of AI and machine learning in investment. Uh, Robin Wigglesworth, thanks for coming in, dude. Thanks for having me. Uh, But before you disappear, uh, what is your long-form recommendation for our listeners?
3: Well, in researching some of these topics, one of the things I came over was uh, Go, an old Chinese game that was the last game that computers still can beat humans. And actually, the computer now can beat us. Just recently, deep mind google's ai outfit finally beat a human champion at go but in researching that i came across this fantastic long-form piece in wired on why humans still beat go but it was just a wonderful piece and i recommend everybody read it it's still very current
0: And next up on the show, you're going to hear a conversation between the FT's John authors and Mohamed el Arian, who has a new book called The Only Game in Town. Mohamed and John discuss the current global economic path and why it's coming to an end. And el Arian lays out his concept of the T-junction. And he also offers some broad recommendations for companies to invest in. Here it is.
2: Mohamed, take us through uh, this You've written this very fascinating book, The Only Game in Town. Let's start with this analogy that runs right the way through the book of a T-junction in the world economy that we are fast approaching. Explain to me what is this T-junction that we're approaching.
5: So what do we know for sure in a T-junction? We know that the current road that you're on is going to end. And the argument in the book is that because of inherent tensions and underlying contradictions, the current road that the global economy is on and the current path that global markets is on, both of these are going to end, that we are no longer going to be able to maintain this low growth equilibrium and we're no longer going to be able to repress financial volatility.
2: Okay, so we have to break out in one direction or other, we'll have more financial volatility and we'll either have very much less or very much more economic growth.
5: Well, we, we have this T-junction, this and, and, and let me say up front that I, that's not the conclusion I wanted. Right. I did not want to come up as the wishy-washy economist saying, on the one hand, on the other hand. But the more I looked into it, the more I realized that that's the intellectually honest answer, even though it's not the appealing answer. Why? Because there's nothing predestined. There are choices that can be made and that will be made over the next few months. And perhaps as much as two to three years that will determine whether we turn to more inclusive and higher growth that delivers genuine financial stability, or alternatively, we fail to make the right choices and we end up not with low growth, but recession and financial disorder.
2: Okay. Even though I'm a journalist, I won't talk about the terrifying option to start off with. What are the choices we need to make? how can we actually turn the right way at this T-junction and get to that kind of inclusive growth outcome? Is it in the power, the only game in town, the title of your book refers to the fact that it's been the central banks who've been the only game in town since the crisis. Is it in the power of the central banks to decide that or whose power is it to decide whether we go on the right path? So it's definitely not in the power of
5: central banks. Central banks have already borrowed an enormous amount of growth, an enormous amount of financial returns from the future. And we're coming to the end of the ability to borrow from the future. It's Mm -hmm. in the power of other policymakers that have been sidelined. You know, what's frustrating and both frustrating and encouraging about this moment in time is this is not an engineering problem. Mm -hmm. This is a political implementation problem. The engineering of it is quite clear. What do most Western economies need? They need four things. One is they need to develop proper engines of growth. We over on finance. We fell in love with the concept that finance was a creator of growth, and we didn't realize that there was a reason why it was called the financial service industry. And we stopped investing in what promotes growth, infrastructure, pro-growth fiscal reform, retooling our labor force. There's a whole set of things that we just stopped doing in the Western world. So we need more of that. Secondly, yeah. We have quite a difference between the will to spend and the wallet to spend. In Europe, it's a fiscal issue. In the U.S., it's an income inequality issue. We've divorced the ability and the willingness to spend. Third, we need to deal with debt overhangs. And finally, we need a lot better policy coordination. This is not an engineering issue. This is a policy implementation issue.
2: Now, I have to say my initial response to what you've just said is one of rather great concern. If you take a look at that first thing that you said, the first category that we need to deal with, it requires governments to suddenly behave in a very different way. And here in the States, we're recording this as people are actually voting in New Hampshire. Whatever the outcome in New Hampshire, we have a horrible mess for a very long time before anything decisive is going to happen in the States. Europe, we're consumed now with the migrant crisis, still haven't really totally recovered from the the Eurozone crisis itself. Doesn't this sound as though the odds do rather tip towards uh, taking the other path at the T-junction?
5: I would readily have said yes, but don't for three reasons. One uh-huh. is, I think that, that there's always the possibility that, that the political system could respond. But two is, it doesn't take that much because there's so much cash on the sideline that you can actually unleash the private sector to do some of the heavy lifting. Third, we're on the cusp of some significant innovations going from being firm-specific and sector-specific to being macro-wide. So these three things make me feel that there is not an overwhelming probability, but there is a probability that we could take the right turn. Unfortunately, there's also the probability we could take the wrong turn. So so that's why it's, it's this T-junction as opposed to a very clear road. Okay
2: since the turn of the year we've had a succession of extremely gloomy headlines both from ourselves and from pretty much all of our competitors it does begin to look as though something quite scary is afoot you just need to look at what's happened in bond markets the sell off in stock markets the continued sell off in oil etc etc how do you account for the kind of uh, disturbance we've had in markets over the last couple of months since the Fed decided to raise rates, does that again suggest that we are beginning to turn decisively down the wrong path?
5: What it suggests to me is that the current path is proving more and more difficult to sustain. Why? Because of the three elements that have contributed to your gloomy headlines and to the sense of economic and financial insecurity. One is we are revisiting the growth prospects of the global economy. It's not just China. Europe just reduced its growth forecast. The UK reduced its growth forecast. Let's talk about the possibility of recession in the US. It's not a probability yet, but it's a possibility. So there is more concern about the health of the global economy. Secondly, we're starting to get evidence that central banks are either unable or unwilling to repress financial volatility in the same way that they've they've have before. And what's happening in Japan is an indication of central bank ineffectiveness. Third, and importantly, add, adding to all that, we no longer have patient capital. We no longer have big pockets of countercyclical money that can be deployed to stabilize markets. Put these three things together and you get a series of disruptions and enormous volatility up and down that cannot be justified by the change in the news as such, this is being amplified in a major way.
2: Okay, and that lack of patient capital in some ways is because the patient capital tends to come from oil it tends to come from petrodollars and so on. And those people are, have suddenly much greater restriction on their freedom of movement than they used to have.
5: And broker-dealers have very little interest in providing their balance sheet in a counter-cyclical fashion. Part of that is regulation, but the bigger part of that is that the market doesn't forgive these days. So broker-dealers also no longer provide the sort of risk capital they used to provide in the past.
2: Now, let's talk about how this maps onto allocating assets, which you've done at different times over the years for Harvard Endowment and for PINCO. You have a bimodal set of outcomes. You don't have a nice bell curve or anything like that to deal with. If you were deploying a large amount of assets at the moment, how do you go about allocating them when there are two such polar opposite outcomes that could come about?
5: So there's a strategic element to this, and there's a tactical element to this. Hmm. The strategic element questions conventional wisdom, and in particular, questions the notion that cash doesn't belong in an asset allocation. If you're looking at a bimodal distribution, cash has a very important role to play in asset allocation. It is not, quote, dead resources. Why? Because cash provides you with the three things that you really need as you get closer to the T-junction. First, you need resilience. You need the ability to stay in the trade. And therefore, you cannot be overexposed from a risk perspective. Second, it gives you optionality. You can change your mind if you have cash. Liquidity is a big problem. It's not easy to change your mind if you're fully allocated. And thirdly, it gives you agility. Because as we get closer to the turn, as volatility goes up, there will be contagion. Good companies will get contaminated by bad companies. So the first thing to to realize is, you know what? Twenty five to thirty percent cash allocation in your normal model portfolio. Yes,
2: twenty five to thirty.
5: Yes, that's that's what you. If you're looking at a bimodal distribution, that's what you need, right?
2: Even though it's making you literally nothing.
5: Correct, because the first way of of making money is not losing it.
2: Okay, now, so to tie this in with one of your most, most memorable analogies in the book, the last analogy in the book, Muhammad Ali and how he prepared for the uh, rumble in the jungle with George Foreman at a point when uh, as I, uh, there was a, basically a bimodal, set of outcomes either he was going to be sent to hospital or somehow or other miraculously he was going to win but there was no way george foreman was going to win on points or that uh muhammad ali was going to eke out some narrow victory so he therefore changed his tactics and turned himself into a a much more resilient fighter could you explain that analogy a little further does does this mean that a, a high cash balance is is similar to being prepared to be whacked very hard indeed on the ropes by George Foreman. And
5: I must say that this analysis comes from a professor at London Business School. It was quite interesting because as Muhammad Ali was getting older, the notion that he could survive 12 or 15 rounds and hope to win on points Mm. was less and less realistic. He simply didn't have that ability to do that. And when he faced George Foreman in Kinsasha, in the Rumble in the Jungle, as you called it, he was facing a very powerful opponent who had won every fight and most of them through knockout so so very quickly, the ali camp realized it was a bimodal distribution. The most likely outcome was that Ali would get injured and injured really badly. The less likely outcome was that he would win, but this notion that he could survive fifteen rounds in front of foreman what used to be the bell of the distribution, was simply not on. So what did they do? They they embraced the notion. They embraced the notion that they had a bimodal distribution. And they said, how can we change the modes? Right. How can we reduce the bad one and increase the high one? And they effectively did what I recommend. The first thing was to build the resilience of Ali. So Ali's training routine became stand in Standing in the ring. Hit basically. And being beaten by former convicts, right? right, And that built his resilience. And then the second element they did, and it's fascinating to to see the YouTube, is when the fight started, everybody expected Ali to go towards the middle of the ring. He didn't. He did the biggest no-no at the time. He went back on the ropes, put up his hands, and people said, he's finished, he's trapped. And what they realized is to another way of increasing resilience is to use the rope to dissipate the blows, the rope above, as a so, guard. So
2: it was the rope was supporting him. The rope was taking some of the weight of all the, the punches Foreman was landing on him.
5: So for seven rounds, Ali rel- relied on resilience, but he also knew that he needed the optionality to continue, and then the agility. And what did he do in the eighth round? He saw a very small opening, and in one of the biggest, biggest surprises in the history of sports, he knocked out Foreman.
2: Extending this analogy, if we go through the experience of being whacked very hard by George Foreman for, for seven rounds, we, we sit there with everything else in our portfolio tanking for a while while we still have a third of the, the portfolio in cash. Well, that, ho- that big chunk of cash enables us to pounce when at last Correct. there's so a buying I, opportunity.
5: Yeah. So first, I would hope that everything else is not tanking because yeah, everything else is diversified. So some of it will be tanking. But importantly... That other part will survey very strange correlations, so diversification will no longer be as effective in risk mitigation. The cash will give you the resilience and the optionality. Now, I can tell you it has worked so far in the sense that if you go back to what I've been saying, in the middle of last year, I suggested that people should be more barbell. Take money out of public markets and put most of it in cash and put some of it in more illiquid, Opportunities where central banks hadn't distorted valuations as yet. Infrastructure was one, tech startups was another. Take a bit of cash up there and put most of it. And then wait. Because the volatility will mean that good names get excessively beaten down. Right. And that's exactly what we've seen, that contagion. So I ironically, you can now, if you've started with a barbell situation, you can actually now start to allocate a little bit more to public markets, but do it in a patient manner. If you haven't and you've got you're fully allocated in terms of your risk budget. This is a really difficult outlook for you because this year is going to be very volatile.
2: And now let's just finish off this. Beyond the necessity of holding on to a large chunk of cash, what else do you do? To you want to be able to take some advantage of an unexpected rally? I mean, your example in the book is the you know the classic buying opportunity when in Brazil after Lula was. Was elected, and everybody thought it was going to hell. And the stock market went up by a thousand percent in a matter of a few years. How do you still retain your, leave yourself open to protect yourself against the worst and benefit to some extent from the, the best? Beyond that, beyond that big slug of cash.
5: So you want companies that offer some of the following characteristics, and preferably all of them. First, lots of cash on the on the balance sheet, right? Balance sheet strength is going to be absolutely critical. Second you want them obviously to be in a growing market and there's lots of names that are available today that have both the cash and are in a growing market. Third management really does matter and you want top quality management. I think that you can actually find quite a few companies that that meet that and you'll find that ironically Given what's happening in terms of the macro disruptions, they have become very highly correlated to the market as a whole, even though they don't have the characteristics of the market as a whole. And for patient investors who are able to stomach mark to market volatility, that's a massive opportunity.
2: Okay, Mohamed, thank you very much.
5: Thank you.
0: up next on the show, Emilia Mahasek joins us for the follow-up segment to discuss last week's episode. Emilia, all around are losing their heads, but you always keep yours. (laughs) Welcome back.
6: It's good of you to say. Sometimes I wonder. Thank you, Katta and Shannon. Um, Last week, you had a really interesting discussion that I think probably could be continued about – population growth, Mm -hmm. essentially, right? Mm -hmm. It made me think, uh, it was specific to China, but it made me think about the paradox of the other, in fact, developed countries, Italy, Japan, Germany, Spain, a lot of Catholic countries, actually. I don't know what the Cuban (laughs) uh, (laughs) population rate is, but uh, about how they're trying to encourage their population to grow and find more stimulative measures and things like that versus China. It's so ironic, seems to me.
0: in reference to Mei Fong, uh, our discussion of China's one-child policy, other than China, it was considered like a deliberate mistake that's partly led to their population problems, whereas I guess in other places it's a more kind of organic challenge. People are just having fewer kids because of the cost of raising children. It's always difficult. Uh, as Shannon is about to learn, okay? <laughs> and um, people are living
4: longer. I mean, and that's are Yeah, longer. that whole dynamics there. I mean, that's what, we didn't actually get into that as much in the conversation with May, but in her book, you want to, it's just like, it's so interesting to see what's, what it's going to happen to China's aging population and sort of this, this huge population of retirees that you just never, we never really had to contend with that many before.
0: Mm. And it's kind of like this inverted pyramid too, mm. where you have a few generations of only one child there now having to support parents, and in some cases, grandparents as well. You know, that's got to be a lot of pressure. I mean, I wouldn't want to have to do that, right? Well, then,
6: the as an only child. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Me too. <laughs> you too, yes. Yeah, so. I thank God uh, for my brother. <laughs> yeah, it's all on Shannon to have... <laughs> multiple <laughs> children to support us all. But I just, yeah, I thought that it was very ironic that you have the same problems, you know, the support of an aging population both in the developing and mm-hmm. developed world and, uh, you know, the other issues to do with marriage and education and all the other costs that come with this sort of decision as to whether you want to encourage your population to uh, procreate or not.
0: Yeah, it affects everything. Uh, Amelia Mahasik, uh, thanks as always. But before we let you go, what is your long form recommendation for our listeners?
6: So it's uh, a body of work, I guess, which is uh, we were having discussion last week about um, sensible coverage uh, at the conservative end of politics, because to counter all the hyperbole that has come with this election campaign in the US. So I've been reading quite a lot of the writers who you were talking about in the Atlantic, you might want to mention some of your favorites?
0: Uh, I think uh, I was referring to uh, articles by David Frum and Mm -hmm. Peter Beinart about the conservative movement uh, in the U.S. uh, published in The Atlantic, I believe, last month.
6: Yeah. So I've been looking at some of those articles and also more recent coverage to do with the Trump vector in New Hampshire and so on. And as the rhetoric this week has just escalated to beyond ridiculous proportions. Just name-calling is, I think, what we're down to. I've been searching desperately for some sort of sensible voice. So that's where I've gone.
0: Okay, and that's the end of today's show. But first, a few more long-form recommendations. We got Greg Meyer back in here. Greg, what is your long-form recommendation for our listeners?
1: It's the book Empire of Cotton by a historian named Sven Beckert.
0: Why do you like it so much? Uh, it,
1: it, it, it's a multi-century history of the world cotton market and trade. It describes how cotton drove industrialization in Europe, how the Civil War in U.S. drove real estate prices in Mumbai, how slavery, cotton, and finance were intimately intertwined. It's a fascinating book.
0: Okay. Shannon, our turn. What is your long-form recommendation?
4: So uh, this weekend, I watched The Pelican Brief, which I probably hadn't seen in maybe 20 years since... John Grisham. John Grisham. Denzel Washington and Julia Roberts. Uh, It was inspired by the news that Antonin Scalia had died. Mm -hmm. For anyone who hasn't seen it, it's a thriller about uh, the assassination of two Supreme Court justices. And it's just... You know, we're in a super interesting moment. Sometimes I think we forget how politically significant the court is, even in an election year. And clearly that's not going to be the case this time around. But it was it's a really, it's a, it's a fun and, you know, charged movie. And it was an interesting time to be watching it. What about you, Cardiff?
0: Inspired by our earlier chat about hemp, I am going to recommend a video of Conan O'Brien, Ice Cube, and Kevin Hart showing a student driver how to drive on the streets of, I believe it's L.A., in search of marijuana. It's hilarious. It's 11 minutes. It will bring a smile to your face. Sounds great. And I think it's time to close out the show. Shannon, get us started.
4: All right. Well, we'd love to hear from you. Uh, Please send us an email with your recommendation or send a voice memo to alphachat at ft.com. You can also call us and leave a voicemail there. We're at 917 551 five zero one two you can also go to ft.com slash alpha chat for show notes and more information we're on twitter i'm at shannon Parai, s-h-a-n-n-o-n-p-a-r-e-i-l and cardiff is at cardiff garcia also we would love it if you would go on itunes rate the show and give us a review let us know what you think let the rest of the world know what you think it'll help us out
0: a whole lot this show's producer and editor, Amy Keene, is so competent that if we didn't actually see her physical corporeal being in the studio every week, I'd be convinced that she was a product of artificial intelligence and machine learning. Thanks so much for everything, Amy. And thanks to our listeners. We will see you here again next week for another episode of Alpha Chat.